subscribe to The Spectator in our Black Friday sale and get the next 12 weeks of the magazine, in print and online, for just £12. And we'll also throw in a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey worth £30 absolutely free. Hurry though, this offer ends on Monday. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Friday. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, James Heal reads his interview with George Eustace, Lionel Shriver asks what's the price of fairness, and Tanjil Rashid reads his arts lead on the BBC at 100. Up first, James Heal. Is Brexit failing? Those who believe it is point to George Eustace, the former Tory Environment Secretary, who told the Commons last week that the Australia trade deal was a dud. Here was a Brexiteer, a one-time UKIP candidate, saying that the biggest trade deal the Boris Johnson years was deeply flawed, a belief Rishi Sunak is understood to share. I don't regret it, says Eustace, as we sit in Portcullis House. It's just not actually a very good deal. The agreement struck by Liz Truss, then the Trade Secretary, gave Australia and New Zealand unlimited access to the UK market for its beef and sheep, while Australia bans the import of British beef. Too much was given away under the agreement, says Eustace, whose nine years in government ended when Truss was elected. He fears that British beef could be undercut by Australasian hormone-treated beef. In the Commons, Eustace claimed that Truss shattered the UK's negotiating position, and that Crawford Falconer, the Trade Department's top civil servant, ought to be sacked, having accepted concessions that were against UK interests. Eustace said that now he's on the back benches, he no longer has to put such a positive gloss on what was agreed, which is putting it mildly. When we met two days after that speech, I asked him what the reaction had been. I had a large number of Conservative MPs say that it needed saying, and we must not repeat this mistake, he replies. Eustace says he spoke out because he feared the same mistake might be made under Sunak. Britain is in the final stages of talks for the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, and Eustace says he is genuinely worried that it will go the same way as the Australia deal. I felt it was important that I fired a bit of a warning shot, so that they recognise that it's not a cost-free option to throw farming under the bus. Sunak, who's taken a keen interest in farming since being elected to a rural Yorkshire constituency, has been saying similar things. During the summer leadership race, he launched a coded attack on the Australia deal, promising to make sure that farmers are a priority in trade deals. Sunak's main problem is understood to be about timing if UK negotiators rush to produce a Brexit win then a bad deal is likely to result. He has purposely set no deadline for either the India or CPTPP deals. But there is a deeper fault line in Toryism, free trade versus protectionism. Eustace, Michael Gove and Zach Goldsmith were dubbed the axes of evil by allies of trust as the trio fought to maintain animal welfare and farming standards. Within Cabinet, much of the Brexit discussion last year was dominated by rows over Truss's Australia deal. Johnson and the rest of the Cabinet eventually backed her. There was an internal conflict in Boris Johnson's own mind, says Eustace. He didn't want to let farmers down, but he also had some quite gravitational pull to the concept of free trade. Eustace served as an agriculture minister for almost nine years, but farming for him isn't just a policy area, it's in his blood. He comes from a long-established Cornish farming family. How did it feel to serve in a government committed to a trade deal that would damage much of the industry? He says he felt conflicted. As Environment Secretary, he said he had to go to agricultural shows and defend the collective government position against attack. I was the one who would end up at the dispatch box, defending a position that I was uncomfortable with. Why did he not resign? He points to concessions he secured, sanitary protections, gradual liberalisation over 15 years and other safeguards, but he says ultimately he was outmanoeuvred. The truth about being a cabinet minister is you fight the good fight, you reach a settlement with your colleagues and you move on to the next battle. 
There were dozens of compromises that I reconciled myself to that I will never talk about in public. This particular one stuck in the throat quite a bit because I think it was probably the wrong decision for the country. But the consensus in Cabinet was against me and I reconciled to that. To Eustace, Johnson's Global Britain agenda was never a major factor in why the country voted to leave. There has been a tendency in certain parts of the Conservative Party to exaggerate the trade dimension as being what Brexit was about. He recalls discussions during the referendum with the Vote Leave Supremo Dominic Cummings. Campaign focus groups show that the public wants to take back control, and in some ways the anxiety that the public felt about the EU was a sort of subset of a wider anxiety about globalisation. Vote Leave's messaging subsequently reflected this, with little emphasis on free trade. The big problem came when May came in, because she had what I describe as a Remainer's interpretation of Brexit, which is, it's all about trade deals, and it's all about immigration, and that's why people voted Leave. Trust, by implication, also never properly understood Brexit. That said, Eustace has no regrets about the referendum. I always wanted us to have an independent trade policy. I'm making a point that the UK has a negotiating hand, which is strong enough for us to negotiate trade deals favourable to the UK. I just don't think we did that successfully with Australia. All Tory MPs believe in trade liberalisation, he says. The difference between those like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Liz Truss, who take a very Adam Smith view, that we should almost unilaterally remove tariffs, and those people like me take a slightly more pragmatic approach. So as Eustace contemplates life on the back benches after a good innings in government, he tends to keep making this point. It's a conundrum the Tories have yet to solve. What do they think about free trade? How best to balance the interests of producers and consumers? And what compromises will be acceptable in the brave new post-Brexit world? That was James Heal. Next, Lionel Shriver. Once the energy price cap expires in April, the Chancellor is apparently considering the levy of social tariffs on the energy bills of the better off a pleasantly elastic category, since most of us are better off than somebody. Charging wealthier customers extra for their energy could facilitate reducing the bills of benefit claimants. The same kilowatt hour would cost the rich, i.e. the marginally solvent, more than the socially dependent. To bolster our beloved fairness, Might this novel pricing scheme be extended to all British goods and services? After all, for higher-rate taxpayers, assuming that after obeisance to HMRC they have anything left, springing for a £7.95 fillet steak at the supermarket is a relatively mild experience. Yet for a shopper reliant on universal credit, the same splurge must be gut-wrenching. Is that fair? So why not price foodstuffs in accordance with consumers' tax brackets? Thus, for benefit claimants, that stake might be knocked down to a couple of quid. Better yet, the clerk could give the shopper two pounds for buying the beef. Basic raters could pay the straight-up seven ninety-five. According to the logic of the tax system, higher raters should pay twice as much for the same meat or 1590. Obviously, those odious additional raters should be reamed. Think of how anxiety-producing buying that fillet was for anyone surviving on meager state handouts. Well, that's how pariahs who make more than 125 grand per year should also feel when purchasing their dinner. One 200-gram steak for a hundred quid. True. Fitting all these different prices on a small packet could present geometrical difficulties. Perhaps we could all be issued with magnifying glasses at the entrance to shops to discern the tiny print. Meanwhile, 
our loyalty cards could be chipped with our most recent tax return to prevent the filthy rich from scoffing that fillet for a mere eight quid. Once we extend this system across the board, the better off charged a thousand pounds for a cinema ticket would finally share the crimped stay-at-home drear of their lower-income fellows. If this proposal seems fanciful, it's no more so than charging affluent customers more than the skint for the same energy. In truth, the entire progressive tax system is a mirror image of that negative two pounds slash seven ninety-five slash fifteen ninety slash hundred pound steak. We all purchase the same product, a rather shabby product, more like mince past its sell-by than a premium cut for very different prices. But then, Britain's tax structure isn't so much progressive as cliff-edge. The Treasury doubles the income tax rate at the astonishingly low earnings of £50,000 a year, on which Londoners can barely afford store-brand mustard. Crossing this threshold is less like stepping over a door sill than pitching over a precipice. Emotionally, qualifying as a higher-rate taxpayer feels distinctly punitive. The bill balloons. Reliefs are cut. Conventionally, the state fines citizens who have done something wrong. Caught speeding, we're done to 100 pounds, from which we infer that the state wishes to discourage us from exceeding the speed limit, given the severity of the fine. Income, as well, effectively has a speed limit, which the state clearly wishes to discourage us from exceeding. Implicitly, no one should be paid more than £50,000 per annum. Piggies who insist on amassing more have been bad and must be penalized. On a macroeconomic level, I would hesitantly advance that such hand-slapping at that level of income is ruinous. Britons take this profoundly socialist tax structure for granted. Yet when I tell my American compatriots that the British start confiscating about half your earnings above $59,000, less than Americans' average personal annual income of $66,755, currently taxed federally at 22%. Their jaws hit the floor. U.S. brackets are much more graduated. 10, 12, 22, 24, 32, 35, and 37%. And that top band only kicks in at income of more than half a million bucks, or about 450,000 pounds. Now, hold the envy. Federal income tax doesn't include state and local between 0 and 16%, or property, social security, and Medicare taxes. Still, in the UK, we also pile on national insurance, council tax, stamp duty, a stonking 20% sales tax, and the highest air passenger duty in the world. Thus, whenever six-figure salaries are indignantly cited in the British press, I reflexively cut the number in half. Until now, most basic rate taxpayers haven't been fussed about that cliff edge, 
because confiscatory taxes are always appealing when they don't apply to you. Now that Jeremy Hunt has frozen the thresholds, current higher-rate taxpayers might be forgiven for greeting the millions of Britons soon to be dragged into the 40% bracket with a bitter, yeah, see how you like it. Low frozen thresholds are intrinsically inflationary. Beyond £50,000, any raise in salary must be almost double the desired net improvement to a worker's standard of living, a cost passed on in higher prices. Meanwhile, the state capitalizes on high inflation, so the citizenry is screwed coming and going. Not only does a rubbish sandwich now cost ten quid, but as wages fail to keep up with a shrinking pound, workers are pushed over the tax threshold precipice like so many lemmings. As far as the treasury is concerned, fab. When last month's inflation rate came in at 11.1%, Hunt must have done a little dance. Don't get me wrong. My sympathies don't only extend to the better off. Rather, I feel sorry for everybody. Britain's average annual earnings are a meager £32,000, and 6500 of that goes to income tax and national insurance before a single telecoms bill gets paid. With energy bills, rents, mortgage payments, food costs, and now taxes soaring, I cannot comprehend how Britons survive on such measly income. Oh, and please don't tell Jeremy about my tax bracket pricing at the supermarket. He might quite fancy the idea. That was Lionel Shriver. And finally, Tanjil Rashid. I had my birthday recently, one I share with a venerable old aunt who shaped my formative years. Well-travelled and fluent in more than 40 languages, Auntie broadened my horizons well beyond the dreary suburb where I lived. She informed me about events in faraway lands, but also steeped me in our island story. On intimate terms with everybody in the arts, Auntie was unbelievably cultivated. Back then, she also spoke with an unmistakable clarity that was a model for non-native speakers of English, such as myself. Millions worldwide acquired English in this way, gaining with it a whole civilization. And so, last month, on my birthday, I was genuinely more moved by the thought of the BBC turning 100. Its centenary was marked with some fanfare and a still ongoing season of rather decent, if not unmissable, programming across radio and television. Taken as a whole, these programmes amount to more than a tribute. They offer a much-needed consideration of the place of the BBC in our society, then, now and to come. For even those of us who are fond of Auntie sometimes find ourselves wondering if it might be time for retirement, if not euthanasia. How the BBC began, BBC Two, presents across two feature-length episodes an account of the birth of the world's most famous broadcaster 100 years ago and the first 50 years of its development. It opens with an all-too-brisk portrait of the BBC's first chief, Lord Reith, and his well-known injunction to inform, educate and entertain, which shaped the BBC's ethos for decades. There seemed to me little appreciation of its significance. In three simple words, a Presbyterian military engineer had truly outdone all the great 19th-century critics, outlining a vision of culture that was rigorous, democratic, uplifting, and as the BBC's broadcast quickly proved, quite effective. 
The BBC's rapid occupation of a central position in society surely owed something to the fact that there were visionary figures guiding it, people who had been thinking seriously about what culture is for. In the 1950s, the BBC producer Sir Hugh Weldon finessed Lord Reith's ideal with his own mission to make the good popular and the popular good. That resulted in documentaries such as Kenneth Clarke's Civilization, disseminating high culture to the masses, as well as television dramas like Dennis Potter's, which introduced daring formal experiments into genres of popular entertainment. Since How the BBC Began tells its story through the reminiscences of this early generation of producers, technicians and journalists, not to mention a great many secretaries to figures inevitably now dead, women who would in a later era easily have become talented producers in their own right, there was a missed opportunity here to portray the fascinating and eclectic minds who envisioned the BBC, since that does seem to me the secret of its early success. Such a portrait would, as a bonus, also have served to shame their corporate equivalents running the BBC today, people such as the current DG, Tim Davey, a career specialist in the marketing of fizzy beverages. But how the BBC began ultimately proves less interested in people than events, relating the history of the BBC through its response to crucial episodes such as the abdication crisis, the general strike, or the Second World War, which was when it picked up its still unshakable reputation as the proverbial auntie. These involvements highlight two related myths we unwisely still promote. The first is the doctrine of separation between the BBC and the state, in reality a complete constitutional fable. BBC bigwigs routinely took instruction from civil servants and ministers, certainly they still do. The second is our naive belief that the BBC merely reflects to us a reality that exists out there in the world, when in fact it is actively shaping that reality. It's worth recalling that George Orwell, a jobbing BBC hack in his day, was inspired to write 1984 based on his experience working there. For Orwell, the BBC was less auntie, more big brother. A statue of Orwell has unironically been erected outside Broadcasting House, the very building he fictionalised as Room 101. The Love Box in Your Living Room, BBC Two, is the evocatively Orwellian title of the BBC's spoof history of itself narrated by comedians Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse in a parody of the films of Adam Curtis, the cult video essayist who, love him or loathe him, is the only creative documentary maker at the BBC with a distinctive style. Curtis's mannerisms include the use of incongruous archive and music, a paranoid view of history as a conspiracy by elites, and an arcane narrative thread based on wild Freudian free association, all of which are employed by Enfield and Whitehouse to comic effect especially in mocking the archive footage. Strangely, despite its silliness, the love box in your living room has a better idea of what it's trying to say than how the BBC began. A story of the eventual subversion of the prim, paternalistic ideals of Reithianism by commercial nihilism. It's typical of the BBC to have approached the mockery of its own history with more imagination than the earnest recounting of it. That reflects significant changes in its attitude to the past, when I was growing up in the noughties, the BBC was still broadcasting Whig interpretations of history, such as the popular radio series This Sceptred Isle, adapted from Churchill's historical writings. But now, instead of celebrating the British past as a procession of moral progress, always somewhat spurious, a revisionist approach has become much the orthodoxy. Ultimately, this makes the gags about class and gender a little less subversive than Enfield and Whitehouse seem to think they are. This tendency is also noticeable in Our Archive Century, Radio 4. 
In its episode on the arts especially, there is a fixation with mocking the accents of the historic figures whose broadcast clips intersperse the programme. The presenters, Dame Mary Beard and the art critic Louisa Buck, daughter of the late Conservative MP Sir Anthony Buck, hardly have the common touch themselves and undoubtedly belong to the same class they suggest used to have an unfair grip on broadcasting. Fortunately, in the great tradition of radio archive programmes, the clips speak for themselves in all their actual diversity. The prophetic voice of George Bernard Shaw with his Irish lilt, the Welsh undertones of Dylan Thomas's lyrical performances, the poems of Derek Walcott, mellifluously recited by the Nobel Prize-winning poet from St. Lucia. The latter clip is from Caribbean Voices, an extraordinary radio series that also discovered the Trinidadian novelist V.S. Naipaul, another Nobel Prize winner, whose stories were broadcast on the BBC while he was aged only 18. It was produced by the avant-garde Jamaican poet Una Marson, the first black producer at the BBC whom we hear from at length in the excellent portrait, Una Marson, Our Lost Caribbean Voice, BBC Two. But there are so many other voices one might have heard on the BBC in the 1940s and 1950s. The radical Indian novelist Mulkraj Anand, the Sri Lankan poet M.J. Tambimutu, the Bengali polymath Nirad Chaudhary, whose broadcasts all deserve a similar treatment. The BBC in its heyday certainly offered a much more inclusive view of culture than the official narrative now wishes to admit. On the centenary, it occurred to me that the BBC was founded in the Annus Mirabilis of modernism, 1922, the year in which T.S. Eliot published The Wasteland, James Joyce's Ulysses came out, and Proust first appeared in English. The BBC drew its strength from the vitality of that moment, from this fascination with new forms of creativity, and its broadcasts from these years, sampled throughout this season of programming, include experimental radio operas by Ezra Pound and Dylan Thomas's classic drama for radio, Under Milk Wood. But now the new has become old, the fascination has dulled, Watching and listening to such past marvels, one wonders how many of today's broadcasts would be worthy of such commemoration. The impression one is left with of the BBC's history is the story of a once great engine of culture slowly running out of steam. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us again next week.